Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We have a big half an hour of science on your radio for you this week. Um, We actually have a very special guest in the studio today with us. VSG. Our VSG is Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft. Dr. Lyndon. Welcome to Lost in Science. Hello, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. That's the nicest acronym I've ever had. So thank you. Maybe the only time we'll ever use that acronym, but uh, we'll see how we go. And, Lyndon, you're going to be talking to us a little bit about um, your research as a climatologist. Is that right? Yes, I'm going to be getting my weather data nerd on. Looking forward to it. (laughs) And letting the rest of Australia know about um, weather data as well. Yes. Yeah. And just to wet, excuse the pun, the appetite um, of our listeners – um, you have been doing some research into historical weather data records and looking at some crazy ass records. From <laughs> crazy ass records. Crazy ass records. Technical term. Technical term. Is that is that right? There's some crazy records out there. Yeah, yeah. So I've been looking at handwritten weather observations from libraries and archives across Australia, trying to piece together what happened in Australia's climate past before the Bureau of Meteorology formed in 1908. So I've been looking at doctors' records. I've been looking at diaries of farmers who've been, you know, recording when the bees came out, but who've also been recording the hottest <laughs> temperature of every day. They've been recording frosts. They've been recording snowfall. They've been recording extreme rainfall events and heat waves and all kinds of things. You can trust the farmers, can't you? Well, farmers probably know a lot more about a lot more about what's going on in the atmosphere than us city dwellers. So, yeah, I, I, I sort of trust them, yes. <laughs> Well, you know, if there's one thing you can always count on people to complain about, it is the weather. So, oh, you know, people love talking about it. Well, well before there was social media, people were writing down their complaints about the weather. Do every, they? Was what? it too hot? Was it too cold? Was oh, it too yeah. wet? Was it too dry? Yep. Yeah, particularly in Australia, particularly <laughs> here, it's never quite right. <laughs> it's never the Goldilocks zone. Exactly. And Stu, what do you have for us today? Well, I'm going to be looking at a couple of uh, recent paleontology stories that uh, have have caught my attention. Oh, One I of really... them is about something really, really big. Oh, I really, I think I know what this might be. And I dinosaurs. Me too. Dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, and the other one is about something really, really small. Ooh. And way, way older. Oh, really? Yeah. Older than dinosaurs. Way older than dinosaurs. Wow. Mm. Older than 6,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes, guys. Sarcasm. <laughs> Note, this may not reflect the opinions of Lost in Science. So our guest on Lost in Science this week is Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft. Welcome again, Lyndon. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. Now, you are a climatologist as you told us in the introduction, and some may call you a climate data 
rescuer. Is that right? Well, yes, I guess that's that's what I do in a nutshell. I, I'm a climate scientist, but the type of research that I fell in love with mixes climate science and also a little bit of history. So, so what I do is I go out and I try to find historical weather observations, weather data from the time before we've got standard weather records. Uh, I know it sounds kind of boring, but it's actually really exciting. So the Bureau of Meteorology's weather observations, they generally begin in about 1900 or 1910, around about when the Bureau of Meteorology was formed. Is that when it was formed? Yeah, the Bureau was formed in 1908, and from that time uh, the Bureau got standards all across Australia, so all the temperatures were taken in the same way and rainfall and all those different climate variables were taken in the same way. Before that time, they were taken in different ways, but that doesn't mean that those observations aren't useful. So So we just need to work out how they were taken? Yeah, we need to work out how they were taken and we need to find them as well. Oh. Hmm. So some of the weather observations that exist before that time are available from the Bureau of Meteorology and so we can extract those and assess them and try to figure out how they were taken and use kind of the history of the data. So we try to find data about data, which is called metadata. We all know about that. We all know about metadata. (laughs) So we try to use the metadata to try to figure out how different observations were taken and we use statistical analysis to try to take away all of the problems from the data that aren't associated with the climate. So, for example, some thermometers were kept not in a standard white box weather screen, which is what you can see uh, at Olympic Park, which is the Melbourne's, which is Melbourne's official observatory now, but they were taken uh, with the thermometers kept in a beer crate or the thermometers kept on a veranda. And that means that sometimes the thermometers were exposed to sun or sometimes they weren't capturing just the temperature of the air, they were capturing other things. And we try to get rid of those impacts, so we're left with only the record that captures what's happening in the atmosphere. And you've got a giant, many-paged book in front of you, which (laughs) is actually your thesis. Is that right? Is that your PhD thesis? Yeah, it is. I brought it along with me because... I work with numbers, but sometimes the words help bring the numbers out. So some of the work that I do looks right back to European settlement in 1788. So the first written records that we have of British settlement in Australia. And we've actually got weather observations from that time. The 21st of January uh, 1788, when the first fleet arrived in Sydney Cove, Uh, Lieutenant William Bradley, he was on the first fleet and he took weather observations there. So we've got temperature from that first week of British settlement in Australia. Unfortunately, when he got off the boat, he broke the last of his six thermometers. Bradley, what are you doing? I know. So he couldn't take any more weather records. But luckily for him, we had Lieutenant William Dawes, who was an astronomer on the first fleet, and he took weather records in Sydney for the first three years of British settlement in Australia. So Dawes had some backup thermometers. He did, yes. He was trained at Greenwich in the UK and he had backup thermometers and he had a barometer and he even managed to cobble together a kind of rain gauge thing. Wow. Yeah, he was actually out here to record Halley's Comet. He never saw the comet, but he did get temperature and pressure records for the first three years of British settlement in Australia. Why is it so important for Australia to have these records? Like, can't we just rely on records from the Northern Hemisphere? Well, that's what's happened in the past. So the recovery of old weather observations, these old numbers, that's quite a developed field in the Northern Hemisphere. They've got written records for hundreds and hundreds of years and there's lots of observations that go back into the 1900s, 1700s, even 1600s in some parts of Italy. But in the Southern Hemisphere, we really don't have 
that many observations just yet. And so anything that we can find really sheds a lot of light on what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere. And more and more scientists are realising that the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere climate, they're not really as similar as we once thought, particularly now that we're getting more and more historical observations. And how are they different? Oh, well, they're, they're different. They're very the, different. Yeah, the Southern Hemisphere's got a lot more ocean and mm. the equator separates things a little bit. So we've, uh, we're not now quite sure how cl- climate change is going to affect the north versus the south and the speed and how things, how things are going to behave. And when it comes to things like volcanoes, for example, uh, where they happen and when they happen really affects how they're going to impact the climate. And so... The volcanoes that affect the Northern Hemisphere we know a lot about, but the volcanoes that have affected the Southern Hemisphere in the past perhaps we know nothing about. So these observations can help us represent what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere a lot better and can help us understand what's going to happen in the future a lot better as well. What sort of data were you you gathering as part of your PhD? We have found observations from all sorts of different people. And the thing that's really exciting about this kind of work, the work that I did in my PhD and the kind of stuff that I'm doing now, is that a lot of the observations were done not by trained scientists, but just by really dedicated amateurs. Citizen scientists. Citizen scientists, exactly. And what's really awesome now is that with some more observations that we're finding, because we're finding more and more observations every year, a lot of them are being discovered by citizen scientists. Yeah, so we've got, uh, I'm working with a group of people at the University of Newcastle, for example, the University of New England, and they uh, have rescued observations, the grandson of a guy who took observations in the late 1800s. He's come along and said, look at these observations. And so we're working with them. We've got volunteers digitising the data. And it was a volunteer who took the data, which is just, it's its great to be involved with those kind of people. So I've got uh, observations from farmers, from astronomers, from convicts, from priests, from people <laughs> who came to Australia They didn't understand what was going on in this new place and so they tried to get a handle on it by writing down what was happening every day. And so that's really exciting. If there are people out there who who do know of a family member or a you know, someone back in their family tree who's been recording data, can they is is there somewhere they can get in touch? Um, with you or with a meteorological society or something like that? Yeah, definitely I would tell them to get in touch with me. Uh, You can just Google my name and find me there. That's Dr Linda Nashcroft. That's me. Or you could probably contact your local historical society and see if they, they have use for the data or your local university because a lot of the universities more and more are getting to know that this sort of research is really important or even the Bureau of Meteorology if you feel comfortable contacting them. You are listening to Lost in Science and our guest today is Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft, climatologist and who has once been referred to as the Indiana Jones of climate data. So are there any like freakish sort of weather events that have happened in Australia that um, that you uncovered in your in your PhD thesis? Yeah, we found quite a few really interesting events, sort of examples of really long heat waves in Adelaide, for example, or a lot of heavy rain. And then one day I came across this weather table in a Sydney newspaper. It was in 1836, the 28th of June, 1836. And the weather table in the paper said snow. Snow. Snow in Sydney. Snow in Sydney, yeah. Get out of town. That doesn't happen. I know, right? (gasps) 
But I think it's actually true. There was a newspaper article as well, and it was said, for the first time in the memory of the oldest inhabitant, snow fell in Sydney on the morning of Tuesday last. It really was amusing to witness how the natives stared at so unexpected a visitor. Some of the old hands expressed a wish that Monsieur Frost and Snow don't intend immigrating to New South Wales. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so um, flowery. I know, I know. And it's a really interesting event, but it's actually, it's really cool, if you'll excuse the pun, across the hemisphere as well, because new research from New Zealand suggests that it was quite cold at that time there as well, and in Africa too. So this is sort of an interesting period in the past that we're going to look at a little bit more. So what sort of um, research are you focusing on next, Lyndon? I can tell you about some of the research that I'm doing now, which is trying to link more and more these old numbers that we've found with more historical accounts of what's going on. Oh, so actually verbal accounts. Yeah. So, I mean... Or like written stuff, yeah, stories exactly, and stuff. exactly. So the work that I did during my PhD was part of a big research project that involved looking at old numbers. So that was the work that I was doing, and we looked at natural records as well. So climate sensitive things like tree rings and ice cores and coral skeletons, those kinds of things. So we had looked at that to try to figure out what was going on in the climate of the past. And we also used documentary records. So qualitative written down information about what was going on at the time. So like for example, some of the numbers that I have for Sydney said that in April 1841, it rained. It was this massive, massive like extremely wet day, 500 millimetres of rain fell in a day and a night. That's a lot of rain. That's a lot of rain. There's so much rain that when I saw the data there, I thought, no, that's not right. That must be a typo. I must have made a mistake. But with the help of the documentary records with the newspapers and the diaries at the time, I managed to figure out that actually, no, it was a really, really extremely wet day in Sydney. That much rain, well, a lot of rain definitely did fall and there was flooding in the streets and roads were washed away, buildings were damaged. And so these two things can kind of work together to support each other or try to figure out how reliable one is versus the other. That's fascinating. So it's sort of, I I mean, I guess you need to go to libraries and research newspapers and then also bring that actual quantitative data together to, to come up with a story. Yeah, absolutely. But you also, you have to have a knowledge of, of the reliability of both of those kinds of sources. So the numbers, for example, like I said earlier, weather data that was taken in the past, they weren't taken using the same standards that we use today. So you have to be mindful of that and you can't sort of directly compare observations that were taken 160 years ago versus observations that were taken today. You have to take into consideration issues associated with where the weather instruments were and those kind of things. But at the same time, you can't always trust documentary data either because, you know, whenever there's an extreme weather event, the newspapers always in the past always talk to the oldest resident in the town and the oldest resident in the town always says, oh, it was the wettest, it was the coldest, it was the hottest. But sometimes that's not completely true. People are really good at forgetting what happened in the past. (laughs) Two days ago. (laughs) Exactly. And the numbers can sometimes help to prove or disprove some of those statements that are made in the paper. So they really need to be, they need to work together. So how is the research going to help how we understand climate change in Australia and in the future? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So these observations that we found, observations that we're still finding, I found some during my PhD. There are citizen scientists across Australia working on recovering observations 
all across Australia at the moment. And those observations, they go into a big international database, which then helps make a huge climate model that we can use to improve our understanding of what's happening in the climate. Okay, And one thing that is really important in Australian climate, and many of your listeners probably know about it, is the El Nino Southern Oscillation. This is a a temperature and air pressure pattern that happens in the Pacific Ocean. And when it's an El Nino event, the sea surface temperatures off the north coast of Australia are slightly cooler and it generally makes it warmer and drier over eastern Australia. A La Nina event is the opposite phase and that's when it's warmer sea surface temperatures off the northern coast, northeast coast of Australia. And that generally makes it wetter and slightly cooler, mainly wetter in Australia. Okay, so we've got this thing, and that's a relationship that a lot of farmers and scientists generally know. El Nino equals dry, La Nina equals wet. But with these historical observations, we can now look further back in time and find periods where this relationship wasn't always the case. So sometimes we find, you know, blocks of 20 or 30 years when this relationship just doesn't hold up at all. And that's really interesting because... El Nino and La Niñas are a big unknown when it comes to future climate change. Lots of people, lots of scientists are still trying to figure out what this guy's going to do because he's a really important driver of the climate across the whole globe. So anything we can learn to understand what was happening with them in the past will really help us in the future. That's hugely important, especially, you know, considering that we've just had a huge cyclone event um, up in the north of the country. Mm -hmm. um, And I'm sure it's playing in a lot of people's minds at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that these, the other thing that these historical weather events show is that Australia has always been a place of climate extremes, high climate variability. Yes, hot days are becoming more common now and cold days are becoming less common, but there there has always been really hot days or uh, quite extreme rainfall events. Cyclones have been a part of Australia's history for a long, long time. And so these historical events really help to put what's happening now in a much longer term context. Hugely important. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today on Lost in Science, Lyndon, and good luck getting together all those citizen science groups around Australia and um, finding and rescuing the data. Thanks a lot, Claire. I look forward to hearing from your listeners. We do love a bit of paleontology on Lost in Science, and I reckon some of our listeners may have heard about the recent discovery of dinosaur footprints in Western Australia. And not just the dinosaur footprints that both Lyndon and I saw in Broome at low tide, because we did see those ones, but they weren't very big. No, they well, were only yeah, the size of our feet. Yeah, are there bigger ones? There, there's and there's heaps of them. So north of Broome, they were going to build a big gas extraction pipeline plant. So they started looking, you know, to make sure that you know did an environmental impact survey and went, oh my goodness, there's dinosaur footprints everywhere up here. North of Broome, it's a fair way north of Broome actually, but you know, Western Australia is massive, so distances are kind relative. of relative to the rest of us. Broome is the nearest place, basically. So Dr. Steve Salisbury has found new dinosaur footprints in an area well-known for its fossils on the Indian Ocean coast, and these new fossil footprints are the biggest yet seen in the world. Whoa. Whoa! So they're 1.7 metres long. That's one dinosaur foot is 1.7 metres long. Oh, my God. So most people could lay down in the yeah. footprint of I, I certainly the could. dinosaur. Yeah, they were so big, 
that the fossil hunters missed them because they weren't looking for things that big. They were, it was outside of their usual scale that they're looking for things. So they're just sort of walking around all over them. And then someone sort of stepped back and went, oh, my God. Yeah, so they, they found these footprints and they're from uh, sauropods, which are those big, long-necked, long-tailed uh, yeah, dinosaurs. Yeah, that that style of thing. Um, these ones are probably, he reckons, they were about uh, 5.8 metres tall at the hip. So their head would have been well tall in that. So that's, you know, about nearly two stories tall. Five metres tall at the hip. 5.8 metres tall at the hip. But this is just an estimate because they haven't got bones, they've just got the footprints. So they're Mm. just kind of guessing a little bit what they would (laughs) have looked like. Educated guess. Educated guesses based on other dinosaurs that they know of. Um, But, yeah, so they're quite huge, these things, and the dinosaurs must have been huge to go with them. But uh, in other paleontology news, on a completely different scale – from a much, much earlier time frame, um, another recent fossil discovery has come to light uh, from rocks in India. So dinosaurs existed from about uh, 230 million years ago until about 65 million years ago, uh, give or take a couple of weeks here or there. <laughs> the exact dates are unknown at this point. <laughs> but the fossils from India are just a bit over a billion years older than dinosaurs so they're not animal fossils or even mm. any plant we might recognise, but they may represent the earliest known multicellular plant-like organisms ever discovered. So, wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty massive for yeah. uh, wow. paleontology. Do um, they know, sorry, do they know why they were in, in India? What was special about that just, region at that just time? Just the rocks that have turned them up, that's where they happened to be. So, they, yeah, that's where they found them. So they're obviously aquatic organisms and obviously there was a sea there at some point and they've sort of dug around and and found these uh these rocks so they actually used a kind of modified microscopic ct scanning called synchrotron based x-ray tomography and the swedish researchers have discovered these tiny tiny fossils where they used this new technology which was able to pick out cellular structures so it could figure out, you know, I could see the structure of individual cells and even smaller structures within the cells as well as connective tissues between the cells of two distinct types of fossil. So they're looking at two different plant-like things that they found. One of them was a simple thread-like structure, so like sort of a string of individual cells. And the other was composed of different types of cells, including some club-like appendages. (laughs) I'm I'm not exactly sure what they might have been, some sort of they, – they reckon they were sexually reproducing, so they might have been some sort of um, reproductive organ, sexual but they appendage. don't really know. Sexual appendage. Club-like sexual appendage. <laughs> yes. That was definitely in the paper, wasn't it? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. If you look that up, um, sexual appendages in clubs is what they're all about. <laughs> now, both types, according to the researchers, resemble what we know of as red algae. So there's, oh, right. there's, there's a kind of algae that exists now which is called red algae. It's very closely related to green algae, but it's one of the earliest kinds of eukaryotic plant-like multicellular organisms. And just on that red algae, why is it red and not green? Does different it, pigments. Does it, does it photosynthesize? Yeah, it does. So, yeah, it's just got a different uh, system of pigments which catch the light in a different way. So it gives off red light, and whereas green algae gives off green light. It's just yeah. what gets reflected out, but mm. they still use... Uh, similar wavelengths for their um, photosynthesis. Mm. So the algae-ish fossils have structures inside their cells 
that are potentially organelles for photosynthesis similar to chloroplasts in green plants, um, which make chemical energy from sunlight, obviously. The fossils were found in rocks that were initially thought to be about 540 million years old, about twice as long ago as the dinosaurs first appeared, but recent radiometric dating showed they were up to a billion years older than that. Uh, makes them at least 200 million, 200 million years older than the oldest previously known red algae fossils. Wow. So they're about 1.2 billion years old, at least probably more like 1.4 to 1.5 billion Whoa. years. And who knows what... Does anyone know what the Earth was like back then? Well, they, deep, they're, deep time? they're sort of, they're sort of uh, not really sure. The period that they fall into is, is part of a period called the Boring Billion <laughs> because we, we know so little about what was happening um, <laughs> from 800 million years ago to 1.8 billion years ago. That they just, so many it's years the boring billion. Yeah, we don't we don't have any idea what was going on. If only that algae was taken weather records. I was about to say, mm. how good would that be? Well, if you could figure out how it responded to the environment, you might be able to interpret its growth patterns in some way mm. to figure out what the climate was like. But yeah. um reverse science it. <laughs> reverse science it indeed. Well they've actually done that with sort of more recent stuff as well, figured out coral growth and things. Yeah, and... corals are sensitive. You can use lake sediments, you can use tree rings, you can use ice cores. Lots of things are climate sensitive. I don't know about algae though. Well, I'm sure it must have some reaction to the to the environment, but whether whether the whether it was reacting the same one point eight billion years ago yeah. or not, we don't really know. So the finding was reported in PLOS Biology. Um not everyone is convinced that the discovery does represent uh, an ancestor of red algae, um, particularly a guy who published a paper last year, which included the most, the second most old version. So he's going, oh no, it can't possibly be red algae. <laughs> but but the uh, the current paper, they're they're like, oh, we're, we're pretty sure it is. But but there's no way of knowing because obviously there's no there's no DNA in these fossils, so they can't really, you know, run a genetic analysis and figure it out. They're just going based on morphology and the shapes that it has left in the rocks. But it does show that multicellular eukaryotic plant-like organisms were in existence hundreds of millions of years earlier than we thought they were. In the boring billions. In the boring billion. It doesn't sound um, that boring. There's <laughs> algae going on. Yeah, well, there's algae all sorts going of things. on and going off. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we just we've just got to find this stuff, and I guess I mean the, one of the interesting parts about this discovery was that they've used this new technology to look really really closely at these microfossils and uh, and figure out what's going on. So it might actually lead to you know a, a whole new branch of um, micro paleontology, which might explain if there were things going on during that boring billion um, that we're just not aware of. It might explain you know, where everything came from, where all the life came from all of a sudden rather than just popping out of nowhere. And that's all we have time for for another week on Lost in Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded in the 3CR studios and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in contact with us, we would love that. We would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on email at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter as well at lostinscience1. 
Or you can find us on Facebook. Just type in Lost in Science on 3CR. But failing that, you can always find us back on the radio next week when the team will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.